This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. We are going to get into our new series, Equipped, Learning to Apply the Whole Bible. This is week number two. So if you have your Bible, if you have your device, click through, open it to Genesis chapter three. If you are unfamiliar with the Bible, Genesis is the first book. Chapter three is the third chapter. It will be delineated by a large three within the block of text, probably on your second or third page of the Bible itself. There's a table of contents if you'd like in your Bible as well, I'm certain. I also want to make sure you have one of our study guides. We put this together because we wanted you to have a resource that you can hang on to. Now, last week in Genesis 1, we talked about canonization, just more so an overview of how the Bible comes together. This week, you're going to want your study guide all the more. There's more things that you're going to want to write down and use as a part of this resource because we are talking about word studies. What we're doing is taking a 13-week overview of the big story of the Bible, concentrating on the major movements of God that tell his story. And then we are learning Bible study skills that we can use on our own, our own personal times of study and worship, and that we can carry through the rest of our lives with us. If you missed last week, really want to encourage you to go to our website and watch the first message. We began where all good theology begins at the beginning with God. And now we're in Genesis 3, still very near the beginning, still with God. You can't understand the rest of the Bible rightly. And and I dare say you can't even understand the life in this world rightly without coming to terms with the first three chapters of the Bible. So from Genesis 1, I wanted you to see three massive truths. One, there is one true God. Two, he made everything. And three, God is a speaking God. He speaks in power, And he speaks in a particular way. He speaks with all authority. And the two ways that we're going to encounter his speaking, that you'll encounter it, that we'll encounter it together, are through first relationship with the very much alive, very much real, very much present son of God, Jesus Christ, who is called the word incarnate. And then we'll encounter God and hear him speaking by reading the Bible, which is called the word of God as well, because it was inspired by him and given by him. So that Bible study skill that we looked at last week wasn't so much a a skill as, as in learning a technique as it was laying a foundation. So we talked about where the Bible came from. And the natural implication of the Bible being the word of God is that it has authority. We live in an age of relativism. It's a hot button word, relativism, where truth can have prefixes sort of attached to it. You can say, well, my truth and your truth 
and many will believe that those can be different things. Now hear me well on this. Just, just hear me well. When it comes to the Bible, there is no such thing as different versions of truth. There is what the Bible says, and that's true. And as creatures living under, rightly ordered under the creator, we have two options with the truth of the Bible. We can either accept it and obey it, or we can live in defiance and rebellion of the creator. That's what we'll see on full display this morning is living in defiance and rebellion of the creator. But we do not have the option to say, well, that's not my truth. Your options with the Bible are accept it and obey it or live in defiance of the one true God. Now, every week during this series, because it's for you, if you've got a lot of Bible study experience and it's for you, if you're brand new to the Bible, is I want to make sure we're sort of oriented to where we are in the Bible timeline, the arc of the, the story. That's easy now. It will get harder. It will get a little bit more challenging as we begin to skip large chunks of the Bible story. But this morning, we are still very much at the beginning. Specifically, we've just finished the creation, the population of the world, and God is still very pleased with what he has done and how all that he has made has turned out. I did a little project in the evenings at home this week. Now, this doesn't always happen for me based on my skill level, but this one project turned out pretty close to the way I was hoping it would, and it was a great feeling to stand back in front of my house about noon yesterday, kind of look over my work and say, this is good. This, this is good. And that's what God is doing where we pick it up this morning. He is standing back, looking at his work, saying, this is very good. And so before we get into Genesis 3, I want us to join together in a word of prayer and ask for God's help and the illumination of his spirit as we encounter his word. God, when we come to your word... It's so important that we come with the right posture. You have spoken, the creator. We, the creature, have heard. Help us to have the right response, which is to believe and obey. I pray for my friends listening here in the parking lot, those hearing my voice online. Give us the strength, the heart, and the desire to obey your word and to learn more of you from it. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you'll turn your eyes with me to Genesis 3, you'll read these words. Now the serpent was more crafty. And pause here for just a second. I'm going to read on. But I said last week... We didn't really learn as much of a skill as much as we laid a, a foundation for understanding what it is that we're holding in our hands when we hold our Bible. 
We're holding the word of God, and the natural implication is that this has absolute authority in our lives, all the authority that God the Creator brings with Him. But that, <coughs> excuse me, but that really is less a skill, authority, learning about the Bible, than it is a posture, submitting to it, bringing ourselves under its authority. This morning in this series, we're going to look at our first Bible study skill. We're going to look at studying specific words. How do we study particular words in the Bible? The Bible was mostly written in two languages. The Old Testament was mostly written in Hebrew, and the New Testament was entirely written in Greek. Now, neither the Hebrew that some people still speak today nor modern Greek are similar enough to translate directly. The Bible was written in what we call dead languages. So not only are the words we read translated, but because these languages are ancient, we need to, to get a little bit further, a step further sometimes, and we need to learn how were these words used within the languages that they were originally written in. So let me finish reading this section. I just want you to get the sense of it. And then I'm going to talk about how we do word studies. Particularly, I'm going to come back to this word crafty. We're going to learn about this particular word. And it's going to open up a lot to us about the Bible story. So again, Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. That's key. God made the serpent. He said to the woman, did God actually say... You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst or the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now right here, this is the essence of deception. And then following that deception, this is the essence of sin. Or another word for sin is just evil. So whether you're newer to the Bible or you're very familiar with this story, people, get to, people tend to get hung up on smaller matters or the minutia when they're studying the Bible. And they kind of miss the bigger picture of what's really happening and what the Bible really intends to teach. And so here's how that happens. Here's how sometimes you, you miss what it's really intending to teach. If you're new to the Bible... A lot of times you come from a naturalistic worldview and you're skeptical about things uh, like talking serpents. You're skeptical even about things like spiritually evil beings. And so you say, here we go again. 
We're only in the third chapter, and already this is getting weird. And so your focus is just on the weird. Or you've studied the Bible a lot. And you're very familiar with this story. So familiar that maybe you even get a little bit bored. And so you miss it because you kind of tune it out. You think, I know what's happening here, so I don't really even need to read this very carefully. Now, wherever you're at, whether you're newer to the Bible, kind of skeptical of that this is weird, there's a talking serpent that is apparently going to stand for evil, or you've heard this story a lot, don't miss this and see the big things. You need to understand this part of the Bible. It's not an exaggeration to say that our world doesn't make sense without this. So last week, I said something similar about creation. Don't get stuck in the debates. Don't get stuck in the debates of creation about science versus theology or whether the earth is a few thousand or billions of years old. We can't know for sure. That's the bottom line. We can't know for sure. And it doesn't change much either way. If we can see what the Bible is clearly trying to teach us, Rather than these smaller debates, we will have a world not only of understanding, but of intimacy and knowledge of God opened to us that we will miss when we get into this minutia. And so last week I gave you three key things that any Bible reader, if you just read Genesis 1 where we were, must agree that Genesis 1 is teaching. And I want to do the same thing here in Genesis 3. Don't get caught up in whether it's weird that there's a talking serpent or don't think I've heard it all before. What must, just let's let's just ask this one question. What must Genesis 3 be teaching for the rest of the Bible to make sense? I've got four things. There are four things that you might want to write down. First, the first thing that Genesis 3 must be teaching is this happens quickly after the work of creation is finished. There is no indication that a long time passes, and there are several clues that this time is very short. Scholars, some scholars, even think this may have taken place on the seventh day. What the man and the woman did is called sin. They fell short of God's holy standards. And so if we go back and we read Genesis 2.17, just in the previous chapter, you will see... That God, that God grants terrific freedom in the garden, but he tells them they're not to do just this one thing. They're not to eat from this particular tree because the consequence is death. And so what do they almost immediately do? They eat from the tree. Now we're in this, this, we're in this phase at my house. My youngest daughter is three. And she has no interest. I think there's some connection there, like Genesis 3 and three-year-olds. Because they are just little tiny sinners running around your house. So she's three years old. No interest in obeying anything she's told to do. She just just loves the opposite. This in Genesis 3 is a picture of my three-year-old. You just see it in her eyes. I I, I, I really have to force myself not to laugh. Because it's just funny. It's, it's almost cute. 
Because I will tell her not to do something, and you can just see her eyes darting back and forth between me and looking at what I just told her not to do or not to touch or where not to go. And then she gets this big smile on her face, and she just takes off running just to see what I'm going to do. That's in her heart. It's just in her heart to be told not what, what not to do and to go do it. Now, that has nothing to do with boundaries. It has nothing to do with our home. Sure, we can be better parents, but we're devoted parents. We're good parents. That's not on our parenting. You can't pin that on me. That's her sin nature. So four things that this must be saying about our sin. First, we can't blame our environment for our sin. Can't blame our environment for our sin. That's on us. The man and the woman are in a perfect place. Not Hawaii, a truly perfect place. Yet evil still is in their hearts. Second, the Bible narrative is teaching that God did not create people sinful. Now, at this point, you and I are sinful from birth, but that's because of our lineage, not because of God's created order. God didn't create people sinful, started out without sin. Third, evil has existed in every human heart. The only exception is the God-man, Jesus. We'll get to that later in the story. But as you meet men and women from the Bible, you'll notice this pattern of watching their failures and sometimes their redemption. But often what stands out, especially to new readers of the Bible, are how disappointing Bible folks are. If you're new to the Bible, you might expect that it's sort of a record of the faithful. And it is in one manner of speaking, but the faithful are those who constantly make mistakes and fail and are often hopefully redeemed by God. The point of the Bible, and you'll see this from Genesis 3 forward, is that all people fail. But God saves people from the consequences of their failure. And then the last thing, fourth, will come in the rest of the chapter, is that God has allowed the man and the woman to experience the, the penalty of their sin right then and there to a degree, but not to its fullest extent. In fact, they get far softer sentences than they deserve. God protects them, and ultimately they have long life. In short, God gives grace in Genesis 3. So we can't blame our environment for sin. God didn't create people sinfully, yet evil has existed in every human heart. But God doesn't give the harshest punishment right away. He gives grace. Even to people who don't worship him, God gives grace for a time. 
But first, let's do a little word study. Let's, let's build our skills this morning together as a part of this series. So if you look back at verse 1, you'll read again, there is a serpent. And the reason it's a serpent is because many other nations told creation myths, and in their creation myths, the serpent was a life-giving goddess. And God is purposely making a point that if you believe in the myths of other nations, they will seem like they're telling you the way to live, but it's a way of deception, and it's ultimately going to lead from a, to a separation with him and a fracture of life as it was supposed to be lived. And it's ultimately going to lead to death. So you see that in verse 1. It says that the serpent was more, and then the word in your Bible might be crafty. It might be shrewd. It might be something else. I put this in your notes. There's a space for notes in the study guide. It's the Hebrew word aram. Now, before you remind me that you don't know Hebrew, I want to tell you, I'm going to give you four ways to do word studies in your Bible with things that are free and without knowing the original language. There are four ways. I'm going to give you four different words. And I'm going to kind of demonstrate doing each one. You can do this all on your own. You can do it if you just know English. You can do it if you just own a Bible. And maybe an internet connection is often helpful. But these things are all free. So first, just one way to do this. There is a website called blueletterbible.org. If you go there, this is referenced in your notes. If you go there, you can use a tool. It was developed a long time ago. And you used to have to own several big volume books to have the whole Bible, but now it's online for free. There's a system, it's called Strong's Numbering System, I won't get into the history, but it takes thousands of words from the Bible, assigns them a number, and then shows you based on that number where all the other places that that word or that number is used in the Bible. And so you don't need to know that the Hebrew word is Aram. You don't need to know that to learn more about it. Strong's will tell you that the word translated crafty is word H6175. And so all you need to know, if you can just find H6175, and you can do that because it's a free internet search on blueletterbible.org, and right under it, it will tell you all these things about word H6175. It will tell you that the Hebrew word, the root of that word, it can mean sly. Or like it's translated in other versions, shrewd. Or it can tell you that it meant prudent. And then under those various definitions, it will tell you 11 other verses that use the same word in the Old Testament. Several of them are places in Job. Other places are in Proverbs. For instance, Proverbs 14, 18. It's listed right there for you. The prudent, same word as crafty, the prudent are crowned with knowledge. From studying this word a little bit, it seems like this serpent, who meant, we are meant to see as either speaking for or actually Satan himself, was created, remember he was more crafty, you could insert prudent, than any of the other creatures that God made. So we're meant to see that he was created with a great deal of prudence. But based on the context of these verses, it seems like through his own rebellion, the virtue of prudence, because what Proverbs says is prudence is a virtue. 
It became a weapon for crafty deceit to draw others into rebellion with him. So if you wonder, well, why the serpent? It seems as though God made him to be prudent and it became something sinful, craftiness, being sly, deceitful. That's one way to do a word study. Let me give you a couple of other words in the next section and show you a few other ways that we can do word studies. Let me just read a little bit more though. Genesis 3, 8. So the people have sinned and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And we just don't have time for this one. And you do need to know a little bit of Hebrew for this, for this kind of a word study. But there is a great play on words and this happens so, (coughs) (coughs) happens so often in the Bible. But what's happening between the craftiness of the serpent and there's a very similar related Hebrew word for nakedness in the man and the woman. So the root of the word nakedness is the same as crafty. And the implication is at the end of chapter two, it says that the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. It literally means they were oblivious to evil. And now they are saying they are naked And it's crossed over by saying, well, now we realized we're naked. Now we know evil exists. When you know the original languages of the Bible, when you study words in the Bible, so many things just become extremely cool. And a lot of them are based on context because these were originally oral traditions. People didn't always have the book. So the Bible will often use wordplay very near to one another. You don't need to read a lot of the Bible to see how the words are operating. We'll see that actually in a minute. So the man said they were naked and I hid myself. Verse 11. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now he's God. He knows this. It's a little bit rhetorical. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, what was the serpent who deceived me? And I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed, we're going to come back to this word, are you above all livestock and above the beasts of the field? On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. This is a strange construction coming up. We're going to look at two words in here in just a minute. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband. Bible translations have a really hard time with the end of Genesis, or end of Genesis 3.16. It's very difficult. The ESV does pretty well. Um, but we're going to look at these words. It'll open up a lot for us. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, 
Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So words are so important. This, this is a great chapter to do word studies in. Let's just look at a few more words. First word I, I want you to see is the word curse. It's in both 14 and 17. Some people say that the serpent and the man and the woman are cursed, and that's not technically accurate. Well, the man and the woman have consequences, and things about life will be much harder They're not actually cursed according to the Bible text. Only the serpent or Satan himself or the forces of evil are cursed along with the ground. Again, pay particular attention. To understand what's happening with this curse, let's look at a different aspect of word studies. A little bit of a a different kind of word study. It can be really helpful when you come to an important word of the Bible to see how else a word is used in the Bible. At the back of most of your Bibles, you can get much larger ones, and online tools are certainly available, but at the back of your Bible, you can even flip there now, there is a tool most likely called a concordance. It's in English. It's a selection, so it's not exhaustive, but it's words, English words, and other places they are used in the Bible, other verse references. Sometimes different Hebrew or Greek words will be translated to the same English word and listed in the concordance, but cursed is a a very good example. You can also use almost any Bible website like a concordance. In fact, a lot of you probably have one on your phone right now. You just enter any word that you're looking for, and it will bring up a list of all the verses in the Bible where that word occurs. The internet has been a tremendous tool for Bible study. So after verse 17, if you just want to know, well, how else is this word used? If you typed it into a Bible search engine, if you looked at it in in a fully exhaustive concordance, the next place that you'd see it occurring is in Genesis 4.11. Always start out with the nearest occurrence. Remember what I said, these were passed on with oral traditions. Usually words are functioning similarly when they're close together. In Genesis 4, particularly verse 11, the first child of the man and the woman it's been born, second, two children have been born really, but the first is named Cain, and he murders his brother Abel. Because of that horrific act, God says that Cain is cursed, same word. If there is ever any doubt about whether these consequences are meant to be seen carrying on from one person to the next, this clears up any doubt. They weren't just for the man and the woman. The consequences weren't just for the man and the woman, but they are for all of their offspring as well because you see the brokenness, you see the anger, you see the deceitfulness. Cain lies about what he's done in the second or the the third person. Therefore, all of the offspring of the man and the woman. This is where the human race comes from and every person is sinful. We find that out just by looking at the word cursed. 
Two more quick word studies and then some application of this chapter. These are going to help us to understand what's being taught here. So in verse 16, God tells the woman, I just want to study one verse because this is a really hard verse to interpret. But again, even in English, we can do a lot with it. God tells the woman that her desire will be contrary to her husband. And most of you are like, what is hard at all to interpret about that? I married, my desire is contrary to my spouse like all the time. It's not exactly, Holly asked me yesterday, we were talking about, about something that we just saw so differently. And she said, well, you know, what kind of woman did you think that, that you'd marry? And, and I just said, you know, I was like, okay, first of all, this is like a landmine. Tricky, we're, we're, we're on tricky ground right now. What kind of woman did I think I'd marry? Um, and so I said, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I always knew that I would see things differently than my spouse. But once you get married, aren't, aren't you just sometimes like, are we even the same species? I mean, we think so differently. It's amazing that we can both be humans and see things so differently. So okay, in verse 16, the woman's desire will be contrary to her husband. It's a strange phrase. It doesn't mean they want to go to a different restaurant for dinner or they load or unload the dishwasher differently or they pack for a vacation differently. Doesn't mean they have different desires that way. We need to study the word to see what these desires are. Now, if you have an NIV Bible, it's a Bible a lot of us read for a long time, good translation. It will say, your desire shall be for your husband. That sounds pretty good. Shouldn't shouldn't a, a woman desire her husband? Isn't that actually biblical? No, not in the way that this word is being used. If we study the word, we'll find out more. It actually says, and then the husband shall rule over you. Now, the husband is to be the head of his household. But again, this word for rule. So we're going to do both of these words, desire and rule. These are not meaning what they might at first appear to be meaning. So when you do word studies, another good way to do them, to study words, is to look for clues from the context. If you're having trouble with the word, does there another sentence that uses the word very near to that one? What about the sentence itself? Is there something that's defining it for you within that? There's a strange phrase, is it, is it used elsewhere? In this case, the exact word translated desire in 3.16 is used again in chapter, four, in chapter 4. Remember, just like the previous word, it's not going to be very far away. This time it's 4.7. Prior to Cain murdering Abel, God tries to warn Cain about the anger growing in his heart. God says that sin is crouching at his door. And then here's the phrase again. He says, it's, but instead of the wife's desire for her husband in 4.7, it's sin's desire for Cain. It says, it's desire is contrary to you, Cain. So the context in verse 4 shows us that sin desires to control Cain in a really unhealthy way. If we track back to Genesis 3, we say, well, what does desire, how is desire functioning here? We look and we find the same phrase. And it's what God says to the woman. We now see that God is telling the woman 
that she's going to have to fight the urge to try to control her husband in a very manipulative way. That because of the fall into sin, women are going to have to fight because they will want to, because of their sin, upset the proper balance of marriage. It will come far too easily for her to, again, manipulate or control or just really simply boss around her husband. And the same thing is happening in the heart of the husband. He, too, is going to want to treat his wife in a really unhealthy way. So we look into this next word a little bit more, too, the word translated rule. It's the Hebrew mashal. Sometimes it's used to describe a kind of benevolent rule of God, for instance, as a generous God to his people. Other times in the Bible, it's used for dictatorial kings who take advantage of and brutalize their people who are supposed to be under their care. And so when you put these two ideas together, God is saying that now because sin has entered the world and sin has entered the first marriage, women will be predisposed to try to manipulate or control their husbands, and husbands will now have the capacity to deal harshly, even brutally, with their wives. And neither of those are what God wants or originally intended for marriage. He does not want wives to try to manipulate their husbands. And he most certainly does not want husbands to treat their wives harshly. But because of the fall, not only is that capacity, but sometimes even that desire will be in the heart of a wife or a husband. We learn a lot from word studies. Now, the rest of the chapter shows us the kindness of God. The people have to leave the garden. They have to leave the presence of God, but it's for their own good. I'm going to read it, but if they stay here, here's the the long and the short of it. If they stay in the garden, they will die. So God gets them ready and he sends them out into the world. It's again, another just simple act. This is God's grace. So really quickly, let me just read this, 3.20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Remember, they're naked. Where once nakedness was a good thing, they didn't even know evil could exist. Now their nakedness is a sign of their shame and failure. And what does God do? He shows them, he covers over them, he gives to them a covering for their shame. Grace in Genesis 3. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest we reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So we've covered word studies. We, we've, done, we've done word studies, but the word of God is first active. It cuts and then it heals. And so we can't leave here 
just knowing more about this dead language. We've, we've done some dead language words. So that's really good. It can really open up a lot. But it's useless, pointless, frivolous if we don't apply what we've learned. The languages are dead. The Bible's not dead, folks. The Bible, the Word of God, and it's living. That's what Hebrews 4 says. So let me ask three questions and give three quick answers from this important, really all important chapter of the Bible. What do we learn from this? What do our word studies tell us? Number one, number one, the Bible teaches that every person is a sinner. We must ask, as sinners, what do we do about our sin? What do we do with our sin? And the answer is, you see it for both Adam and Eve, we confess it. Both of them take a bit of time, but they both get there. Both of them, read in your Bible, it will say, Adam blames Eve. He says, this woman, it's kind of not my fault, but, but eventually he says, I ate. And the woman tries to blame the serpent. She said, well, I was tricked. But eventually she said, I took the fruit and I ate. First John, way later in the Bible, 1.9 says that when we confess our sins, God through Jesus is faithful and just, or he's in the right because of Jesus to forgive us. We need to confess our sins. The first people confess their sins and God does give them grace. So what do we do about our sin? We confess it. Question two, what does God do for our sin? What does God do for our sin? First, he crushes the crafty serpent who tries to deceive. And second, he promises hope. He, tries to, he crushes the crafty serpent who tries to deceive and he promises hope. There's a curse on the serpent. Again, Genesis 3.15. It says that part of the curse is there will be division between the woman's offspring and the serpent. Not just here in the garden, but it will happen again. Thousands of years later, another man who represents all of humanity, like this one did, will again be in a garden. And he will have a chance to try to save himself taking on the kind of place of God or follow through this time with the commands of God. That's the choice that Jesus, the son of God, is given in the garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified and died. He could have saved himself, but he's there in the garden of Gethsemane. Instead, he crushes the serpent beginning of Luke, there's a genealogy that traces Jesus' lineage all the way back to Adam and Eve. He is among the offspring. And this is very much what this is meant to say in Genesis 3.15. There will be enmity between you, the serpent, and the offspring of the woman. And that happens in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the life of Jesus Christ. He crushes the head of the serpent when he obeys the word of God and goes to certain death because of his love for sinners who confessed their sin and trust in him for salvation. That's the hope that God gives. 
So what does he do for sin? He crushes the crafty serpent once and for all, and he gives hope. Last question. What is the future hope for sinners? What's our ultimate hope? And the answer is that God promises that we will be free from the consequences of sin one day. So this is the third chapter of the Bible. The second to last chapter of the Bible looks remarkably similar to this one. Again, people who know God are in a garden. Garden's a big theme, metaphor, and place for the work of God to take place. Except this time, the very almost at the end of the Bible, the next chapter, they're in the garden in Genesis 1 and 2, that's the first scene, but in chapter 3 of Genesis, it all goes south. They actually need to be removed from the garden. In the chapter, the next chapter after the second to last one, it's the very last chapter of the Bible, the people aren't removed from the garden. It says that they live in the garden with God forever. What happened this time in Genesis 3 will not happen next time. It won't happen again. God has promised that. The hope to anybody who puts their faith in Jesus now is that they have to look forward to freedom from the consequences of sin in death. And they get forever the abundant grace and gift from God, which is life with him, unending in joy and in peace. So we ask these questions. Have you confessed your sin in Jesus' name? Do you know that he has defeated the deceitfulness that would try to draw you away from him? The deceitfulness of which you are accused from outside of you and that lurks in your very being. If you don't know what's in there, ask him for clarity and a realization of just how offensive sin is to him, even in your life. He'll give it to you. If you ask him to show you your sin, he will do it. And then if you put your hope in him so that not only will you have life, but life in abundance forever. Those are the questions that come out of Genesis 3. If you want to talk more about these things, I really want to connect with you on this. We will be discussing this more as our series moves on. But let me just encourage you, as you study the Bible, you can do these things. You can see these words. There are free tools online. You can see words in surrounding chapters. You don't have to read more. It, that's the easiest thing to do. If you're not sure what a word or phrase means, I just want to tell you, just read one chapter before and one chapter after it a lot of times. Not every time, but a lot of times, great illumination will come from the immediate context. If you're a little bit more familiar with the Bible, maybe think of where else you've read that word. If you have a concordance in the back or a Bible study app on your phone, type the word in and just read other verses where that word is used. You can do this. These are not hard things. You can do this. You don't have to know dead languages. You don't have to have big, thick books. Most of it can be done right in your own paper copy of the Bible. A little bit more can be done on your phone or in front of a computer. It's really good things, and you can do this. So if you confess your sin in Jesus' name, do you know that God has defeated the deceitfulness from outside of you and inside of you. And if you put your hope in him for eternal life. Let's pray.
God, may you be praised. May your name be known as great, that you have defeated the evil one. By the power of your word, incarnate Jesus Christ, who is crushed once and for all the head of the serpent, that evil has no place in the kingdom of heaven, and forever we live with you and our hope is in Jesus. I pray for my friends here, listening online, that as they study the Bible, you would bring to them a particular illumination. That when they don't know what a word or a phrase means, that you would show them through the Holy Spirit and through other places in your word. Thank you for all the tools that are available. What a great age to be alive to study the Bible. We have so many things. Thank you for them. Thank you for the men and women that have created them. The gifts that you've given them and the way that they've responded to bless all of us with them. May you increase our knowledge of your word so that our worship of you, discipleship, our following after Jesus may increase as well. Make us more like him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Savior Evangelical Free Church is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about what these words mean, visit our website at osefc.org.